0: Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminowars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. We have alluded to it before on this podcast. There is a Fort King Road running through the central Florida peninsula, and then there is the Old King's Road running parallel to the state's east coast. The search for the Old King's Road will take listeners this week through other searches as well. For lost plantation gold, for lost sugar plantations, for lost ancestors, and for lost Osceola, who lost his freedom to an army ruse on the Old King's Road, just south of St. Augustine. Joining us this week is Bill Ryan. Bill moved to the Palm Coast some years ago and immediately fell in love with his surroundings and with the vibrant stories told about the area. Although visible in only a few places, Bill set out to trace its length and to tell stories related to it. He believes he has found the spot where Osceola sought to parley with the army and where Osceola's camp was. He also investigated an old painting in London, England that purported to portray Pocahontas, but which in fact may have been a rendering of Osceola's wife and child. Bill discusses these in fascinating detail, as well as the plots and discoveries from his heavily fact-based historical fiction. His books are In Search of the Old King's Road, *Bulow's Gold, Osceola, His Capture, and Seminole Legends, I Am Grey Eyes, A Story of Old Florida. Door to Time in Florida, Past, Present, and Future, and Journey into History, Flagler County, Florida. William P. Ryan, or Bill, welcome to the Seminole Wars.
1: Thank you. I'm an old man in Valdosta, Georgia. I'm honored that you called me. I'm well aware of your group and the wonderful things you guys do. Bill, how'd you become interested in the Seminoles? Well, it began when I started searching the King's Road, which was built by the British prior to the American Revolution. And I met some very interesting people in the Seminole tribe. I was very fortunate to meet Willie Johns, who was a great historian and the wonderful Seminole. And I also met a local by the name of Stephen Held, who was born in St. Augustine. And with Stephen, we started tracing the King's Road. This brought Willie Johns in because this was the site of the so-called capture of Osceola. And meeting Willie Johns opened a new avenue for me in that he is or was a great historian himself. So we spent some time with Stephen Hald and Willie Johns on the King's Road south of St. August. And Willie asked me, Bill, is this the first time a Seminole has been here in years? And I said, yes, it is, because it was a very rough, unsettled country we were in. This pretty much got me going on doing the research on the Osceola book.
0: You didn't start this series with Osceola. What did you begin it with and why?
1: Well, I began with the King's Road because this was the main road into Florida. It connected with a road coming down from Savannah called the Georgia Post Road. And it actually was one of the most important highways ever built in America. In fact, it was credited as being the first commercial highway in America. All of the history, including the Revolutionary War, the Seminole War, the Civil War, and immense history flowed over this roadway. And of course, it was worthy of being researched. I'm not the only person. There were many before me who did work on the history of this
0: incredible road. You consulted quite a few historical sources for your books.
1: Well, they're all listed in the back, but uh, the sources are tremendous. Some of the best ones were Mr. Sprague, of course, which everyone knows about, which is about 900 pages. Of Sprague, but it's all in the back. There's sources everywhere. There's umpteen pages of sources. and of course, Sprague was a gold mine, as any seminal researcher would know. But you know, I've listed to that. Keep in mind, I'm an old guy, and my brain is weakening, but the research in these books is quite accurate.
0: Bill, your sleuthing has also led us to a curious story, which began with gold as well as Bulow's gold. But it led, instead, not to a secret site along the old king's road, but to the old king's home, London, England. It touches upon Osceola, but in an indirect way. Your findings created quite an uproar and changed what some people thought was a historical fact. Briefly, what was the Spanish background in Florida before the British takeover? And then what did the British do when they took over? Well,
1: Spain, as I'm sure you're aware, held
0: St. Augustine for about
1: 200 years, roughly. And it was an army camp. Their main purpose was to protect their gold fleet coming up from Mexico and South America. Now, in the many wars, England took possession of Florida. The Spanish had to leave. Well, England found that this was an empty area having great potential, but no roads. So, of course, the British governor knowing there was going to be an immense settlement of indentured European people called New Smyrna, uh, decided to build a roadway, good, modern, let's call it paved road, into Florida to bring people down there.
0: How were you able to trace the old King's Road where it was very hard to trace it? There are
1: many papers that have been written on this. There were Indian pathways, of course there were. And we had the so-called Atlantic Coastal Ridge, which was sort of like a high ground running along the ocean. And there were traders, there was exchange between the north and the south, and there most definitely were known Indian pathways. It was built primarily by subcontractors allotted by the British government. And in many cases, they found these wonderful piles of shell left by the ancient Indians. Indians, which could be as much as 3,000 years old. And they found that they made wonderful paving material. Sometimes they had to build raised causeways across the wetland uh, using slave labor and primitive tools. They built fantastic raised causeways. They also built bridges across wetlands. So the construction uh, was essentially a modern road that would take stage coaches, light wagons, wagons, uh, ox carts, or what have. Where did it begin? It started on the Florida border, which to the north would be the river, and it ran all the way south to New Smyrna eventually, which is, of course, to the south. It also ran through interesting places, such as Calford, which is present-day Jacksonville, was called Calford. It connected to St. Augustine. It wandered all through what would later become Flagler County in Florida.
0: When did construction begin on the Old Kings Road.
1: Well, it started uh, essentially just before the American Revolution, and so most people agree that it was a functioning road in 1774. How much traffic did it facilitate? Well, it was constant use. For example, when the indentured settlers came over from Europe, there was a rebellion. In other words, what was promised them in terms of support just wasn't there. In other words, they were underfunded, is a good term. So they had a rebellion. So the British army had to send soldiers south on the King's Road to subdue the rebellion. But there was almost constant usage by people arriving, by famous people. Uh, The Civil War, the War of 1812, the so-called war when the United States was trying to take over Florida by force. that was called the Patriot War. It just goes on and on and on. That road was in constant use. The King's Road was the primary road coming south into Florida, and it was a, a major
0: support road for the plantation and for the commercial enterprise. You noted earlier that there are many sources available. Tell us about these. Yes, I used many, many sources. Some of the information, it started to become amazing. It was just
1: like these were stories that were desperate to be told. And every time I turned around,
0: there was a new source of information. Was there anything left by the time you started your investigation? It was gone. The road didn't exist. With development, you were in a race against time to track where the old King's Road actually was. Correct. This Mr. Held,
1: who was a local, we would go north of St. Augustine and actually walk on pieces of it. And when we were walking, you could hear the trackers and the people digging uh, in the woods to build houses. In other words, it was a race between the destruction of the road or the few remaining pieces and the developers and
0: our cameras and recording the developers won the battle. Besides developers, the Old King's Road has been a victim of so-called artifact or treasure hunters.
1: That is true. There's a long history of people digging for gold or treasure or uh, just so-called pot hunters, but I think that the real danger were the developers. In other words, the documents I would find uh, were written by professional archaeologists, university professors, so forth, going back, let's say, almost 100 years, and each 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 one was essentially agonized about the development, destroying any record or trace of the old road. So basically, when I got involved, there was very, very little of it left.
0: In one of your novels, you talked about the seminal attacks on the sugar plantations along that east coast area of Florida.
1: That was the research of the plantations within Flagler County along the
0: rooting of the King's Road. Now, obviously, they were all destroyed in the Seminole War. The old sugar plantations, the ones the Seminole burned down in the early days of the war, they were either on or very close to the old King's Road, weren't they? Well, yes, they were. I have a quite an amazing map done by a scientist.
1: Uh, actually, did it in the 1930s. And he traced where the plantations were located. Now, in Florida, along the Atlantic coast, there was an immense wetland. Today, we call it Graham Swamp. But it was huge. It was over 40,000 acres of wetland. It was fresh water. It had good soil, fresh water, and it was within five miles of the ocean. So this this is so amazing. Here is fresh potable water within a couple miles of the saltwater ocean. So the plantations were located all up and down the King's Road, adjacent to the ocean, which is quite amazing. In Flagler alone, there were over 25 known plantations with thousands and thousands of slaves. Now, some of these were immense operations. For instance, at one time, Buell had about 300 slaves on that property. There were little plantations but they were all there they were all destroyed in the Seminole war
0: when you were investigating and walking what you thought might have been the remains of the old king's road your purpose was just to document where it was it wasn't to find artifacts or other things
1: we weren't looking for treasure, although we did bump into real, buried Spanish gold in Flagler County for real. And someone actually went after it in 1940, and I put that in my book. In fact, he wrote a report, and I actually put his report in there for Bob. To
0: beta. He found it. How much do modern roads track where the old King's Road had previously been?
1: Well, modern roads. uh, You see, they
0: numbered roads in
1: Florida, uh, numerical. So US-1, which was a a major, major road coming into Florida. And prior to that was something called the Dixie Highway, which was a phenomenal thing. And I'm writing a story about that right now as we speak, the Dixie Highway. So these modern roads uh, at times would follow the King's Road route, but sometimes not. And eventually they would just simply bypass the King's Roads, and the modern roads would take over. The Dixie Highway is unbelievable. This was Mr. Ford cranking out his hundreds of thousands of Model T cars, a guy that bought an island from some Indian called Miami, down in Miami. And this guy wanted to promote his purchase and Model T cars. And the next thing you knew, you had the Dixie Highway. That's a story unto itself.
0: So you've been able to confirm that it was just about always a very well-traveled road. Everybody that we
1: know of traveled that road at one time or another. These would be the generals in the Seminole War. These would be the famous Indian leaders. You had many very well-known Seminole leaders that actively followed the King's Road. You had during the War of 1812 and the War of the American Revolution and the time of Civil War. All these famous historical figures went up and down that King's Road. And I'm laughing now. I I attempted to write a play, and I called it The Road. And the play was shown to the Flagler County Performing Arts Center, and they they wanted to produce, uh, but I've never finished it. But in answer to your question, everyone that we know of, historically, more or less, went up and down that road.
0: Bill, are your books fiction? Fact-based history or a combination of the two? What do you call them?
1: Yes. I really hate to use the word fiction in a sense, because Bulo Gold is being told by the housekeeper of the Bulo family. And she was very real. She exists. And I uh, essentially told what was going on in this time of the Seminole War, in the war revolution, and so forth, as viewed to the eyes of a young mulatto girl. And as you know, a slave or a house servant is in in other words, people will talk, she will see things, she will know things that she perhaps should not know. So, Bulo Gold is essentially the story of, of Bulo's housekeeper. Now, she's been dead for a long time, so how am I going to get her story out? So, this I did invent. I invented a young girl in Hey Georgia, who is as a mulatto or of black blood, and uh, she is, has a very strange connection with her. Uh, Really
0: add For your book, Beulu's you Gold. So, what story about this were you telling?
1: It was really the Beulow family. The Beulow family in Charleston was fabulously wealthy. They were into cotton. They were into plantations. They were very wealthy. Beulow was the younger son of the family, and he could not inherit at that time because only the eldest son. So Beulow, in 1821, when the U.S. took over Florida, came south and bought land from an existing settler to form a new plantain and he brought down a construction crew from charleston of about three hundred slaves and he commenced to build this immense sugar mill, which may well be the largest ever built Florida, immense, because he had practically unlimited capital money, and of course the Seminole War did not benefit him, but we have documented visits by famous Seminoles, Wildcat, King Philip, we have the very interesting story that's pretty well authenticated, that Mr. Buell uh, got the daughter of King Philip, who was the head of the Miccosukee Seminole was on the Atlantic coast, pregnant, and a child was born. This child, believe it or not, was introduced to Charleston society as Bulo's adopted daughter. Now, this is well documented from the Bulo family, and there's quite a story here. She later married a very rich gentleman in New York City, but a lot of this is in Bulo Gulf. When the plantations were burned by the Seminole, every plantation had a little bit of working capital. As you probably know, No, the money at that time was not paper money. It was Spanish gold and silver. The currency of the time were pieces of eight or pieces of uh, silver. Very few of the planters got away with no more than the clothes on their back. In other words, they literally fled in the night for their lives.
0: Of this so-called Bulo's gold, where is it? Or who got it and got
1: away with it? My opinion is that the Seminole tribe got the gold from those plantations. My opinion is, and this is documented, when Osceola was captured, he was camped on this site. I have maps of it. And he had 25 pack horses. The army never got those pack horses. There's no record of them existing following Osceola's camp. And surely the people that watched him being led into St. Augustine, it was quite an
0: affair, would
1: have observed or written a about it. Now, what became of those? And what was on those pack I'll leave you hanging there. There might have been.
0: All right. So you've got a book in search of the old King's Road. You've got a book on the Bulow Plantation. You have a book searching for the lost sugar plantations. You've got a book on Osceola, told from first-person narratives that you created based on the historical record. What is this book, Gray Eyes? And how does that work in with Seminole, the old King's Road, and Migration?
1: Okay, Gray Eyes is an entirely different guy. The Seminoles, and I'm sure you're aware of this, one of their major businesses was cattle. In fact, Miconoke had one of the largest herds of cattle ever recorded in central Florida. I mean, these were vast herds. These were the Spanish cows. Of course, they got away. They bred like rabbits in Florida. They just loved Florida. <laughs> there were these Spanish cattle everywhere. Well, many of the Seminoles were in the cattle business. And their main customers were, of course, these plantations, which they got along very well. There was no animosity whatsoever. Mr. Greyeyes is documented as being a close friend of the British governor in St. Augustine. And I said to myself, how in the world could an Indian be a close friend to a British professional soldier who is noted for killing Indians? Well, nevertheless, I have letters, copies of the governor's letters that I got in the St. Augustine Library, saying he was his buddy. It also said that he helped to blaze the trail that later became the King's Road, which he said, my own engineers could not find a way through the wetland, but Gray Eyes did. So I wrote a book called Gray Eyes, which would have him telling from his point of view everything that was going on. In other words, I took about 130 years of Florida history through <laughs> the eyes of a Seminole
0: this would have been early in the history of people being called Seminoles. What's that story, and how does that work in with this tale of old gray eyes?
1: The Seminoles were the multiple tribe chased into Florida by the many wars going on. Jenkins ear, etc., etc. You name it, there was a war. They had two languages, Hitachi and Mikasuki. They didn't like each other. They were constant at each other's throats at times. And these various groups uh, fled into Florida for safety. Many people called them Seminole, which meant stranger or wanderer. And eventually, I think they. Got to like the name and they started calling themselves Seminole. But there never were any such thing as Seminole. In fact, the Americans called them Creek and Upper Creeks and Lower Creeks, and those were made up names too. They certainly were not the names the Indians used.
0: Were they able to reestablish or rebuild the plantations after the war?
1: No, they did not. I'm sure that few, if any, of the plantations survived.
0: But not for lack of trying?
1: Well, some tried. They attempted to rebuild St. Joseph. But in the meantime, there were commercial things going on. Sugar was king, but after the Seminole War, the price of sugar had dropped dramatically. Technology had changed. People were able to produce sugar in more places, cheaper, and so the price of sugar fell. There wasn't that much economic justification to rebuild those plantations. Also, remember, we had settlers now, pouring into Florida, settlers, and for the most part, these guys would grab off, you know, these old plantation land. Uh, This was the so-called Florida crack. These were guys coming in from the north and settling and forming their own little homestead. You had the Armed Occupation Act, which said if you could hold a piece of land, it could become
0: yours. And so... In 1838, an emissary came to Florida purportedly with bags of gold to try to buy off the Seminoles to get peace, so forth, and so on. Bill, your sleuthing has also led us to a curious story which began with gold as well as Bulow's gold, but it led instead not to a secret site along the Old King's Road, but to the Old King's home, London, England. It touches upon Osceola, but in an indirect way. Your findings created quite an uproar and changed what some people thought was a historical fact. What's the story behind that?
1: That's the Sherburne story. Uh, Mr. Sherburn was a government official, high-level official. He was sent to Florida to settle the Seminole War. As near as we can tell, he had a bag of gold coins to pay off or buy off and try to work it out. He had already set up a meeting with other Indian groups who would act as go-betweens with the Seminole tribe. However, it blew up in his face. First of all, Osceola had already been captured by the time he and the Indians arrived here. And secondly, the head of the army was not in favor of this peace group
0: in any event. So he didn't really accomplish much. Now the case gets even more curious. It involves, we think, Osceola's wife and also Pocahontas of John Smith fame. Tell us about it.
1: Much later in time, Sherburne had written plays about the Seminole Indians, and we know that these plays were conducted in places like Philadelphia, but I was never able to get copies of them. I just know that they occurred. Sherburne, much later, is going to appear in London. We found a document in the London newspaper talking about a painting that he was to present to the Queen of England, and this would be Osceola's wife and child. We then found the painting, which had been hanging for hundreds of years, in a museum in England labeled Pocahontas and Child. The painting never arrived at the Queen. It ended up being sold to the family or the relatives of Pocahontas in England. There's a
0: long story about the painting. Bill, and here's where you come into the story.
1: I did a great deal of research on that painting. I contacted the museum director where it was hanging, and I wrote a paper, much like a lawyer would present a case, saying that it was physically impossible for that to be a painting of Pocahontas for many reasons. I also found an old book that was published in England writing about a nephew of Osceola, which I felt was fiction. They had a stage group of some Indian reenactors in England. And remember that The Queen was very interested in plight of the Seminole Indians in America in this book were illustrations of this so-called nephew i found that the illustrations face were identical with the young boy being rendered in this painting as the son of osceola in other words it seemed to me to be the same model so i wrote this paper sent it to the museum in england and after much time they concluded that i was right The story then began and it got worldwide attention. It appeared in practically every newspaper in the world because this was a relatively famous painting.
0: It appeared in the Smithsonian Magazine summer of 2013. Which Smithsonian Magazine in particular was it in? National
1: Museum of the American Indian, which is a sub-chapter of the Smithsonian. And my story is in there in color telling of the research that I had done and showing the pictures. Well, the end result was some very angry emails that I got from relatives of Pocahontas in America and in England. They were ticked off completely that I did this, but I was completely sure that this was a case of art fraud. In other words, this beautiful painting was made. It was either made in America or made in England. We really don't know who did it. And Mr. Sherburne died in England. And someone, in my opinion now, globbed onto the painting and sold it to Pocahontas' family as their relative. And it hung in the British Museum for years and years and years. In the meantime, it was intended to be Osceola's wife and child. But, of course, it wasn't painted from life. It was painted from models, and in my opinion, from Indian reenactors.
0: Pocahontas and Osceola's wife are separated by two centuries. What part did that play in your determination?
1: Oh, uh, yeah, that, the, the question was the time difference between Pocahontas and this painting was gigantic. It was completely impossible for this painting to be linked to the time of Pocahontas.
0: Bill, so the book that's most of interest to our listeners would be your book on Osceola. Tell us a little bit more about Osceola as a person that you came to learn about from your investigation and as you portray in the book.
1: Well, Osceola, of course, is basically a young man who could best be described as a war leader. He most definitely had a Scottish father of Scottish descent, and he had a full-blooded Indian mother. He would never, ever represent himself as being a white man. But if you looked at any picture or any rendering of him, if he were in normal colonial street clothes, you would never say he was an Indian. And yet, this young man... at first liked the Army. He thought that the soldiers at Fort King were there to protect the Indians from the whiskey sellers and the very bad people that were moving in. And he was actually an active supporter, a good friend of the Army course, that's not the last. He's going to get very angry. So my book, A, has him speaking English, which he did not, to you, and uh, it reflects his change from this rather nice young fellow to a very angry war leader. And he was an effective war leader. He was very good at what he did.
0: Can we take at face value some of the deeds associated or attributed to Osceola during the war?
1: Well, there's no question in my mind that he killed one of the Seminole chiefs. Uh, You see, the Seminoles were much divided about the war. There was a group of chiefs that simply did not want war with the U.S., and they, of course, were very opposed. And uh, there was a fellow by the name of Charlie Mantua, and I'm quite certain that Osceola did kill him, this is my own mind in reading the old papers. Osceola had changed from this happy-go-lucky young Matt to a very angry young
0: man we use the term osceola but osceola actually means something what does it mean
1: You know where the name Osceola came from. That's a black drink singer. The black drink goes back thousands of years, and that's a wild plant that grows in the south. It's loaded with caffeine, and the natives drank it, including the settlers, drank that in place of coffee. It's a very powerful and his name is Black Drink Singer, for Osceola.
0: Your book on Osceola's journey and capture picks up
1: where? Well, it picks up. He's sitting on a stop waiting for the army to come. He knows they're coming. He knows they're coming. But he didn't know that they would betray him. He thought he was coming for a meeting to establish peace. He already had sent groups of slaves. This is well documented. Uh, Groups of slaves north to St. Augustine as agreed. He had done just about everything they'd asked, and he wanted to have a meeting to establish peace. He was a sick man. He was still suffering suffering from malaria. And he was not well. And here comes over 200 soldiers down the King's Road. 200! And, you know, Osceola's little group might have had 30 or 40 people tops, and they were camped, and he knew they were coming. And they read a prepared script to him. He just basically said, hey guys, do what you're going to do. I can't stop them.
0: Where did they take Osceola to, and where did he ultimately end up?
1: Well, after he's captured, he's left in St. Augustine for a while. And then the army was very nervous about Indian raids. People might let him free. And so they shipped him up to Charleston. There he died of an infection of the throat, which is still common today. And unfortunately, his doctor cut his head off and kept his head in a glass jar, which eventually ended up in a museum in New York.
0: Has the skull of Osceola survived?
1: Well, it was destroyed. The museum burned. was destroyed. Uh, someone later dug up Osceola's grave, one of the Florida archaeologists, and they found the skull without a head. They also found the bones of a young child that had been buried with Osceola. No one knows anything about that.
0: You and Seminole tribe historian, the late Willie Johns, went out to a spot that you believe is the place where Osceola was captured under his white flag, as well as his camp. You asked Willie whether he might have been the first Seminole to be on that spot in the year since 1838. What was his reaction? He asked
1: me how in the world would I know, but remember this is a very rough and ready place, and I would say the answer to that is the one I gave to Willie Johns: Yes, you are the first. Now, terrible things happened there. This area not only was Osceola captured there under a ruse, a white flag, but several of the main Indian leaders were captured there also. They came in for conferences and were grabbed off and locked up in the uh, Citadel in St. Augustine. Now, of course, Osceola got the good publicity because he was a handsome man and two famous painters, too painted paintings of him. And, of course, he got
0: the worldwide publicity. Other people were forgotten. Other Seminole were captured at that time with Osceola. Unlike Osceola, several of them were able to make an escape from the Castillo de San Marcos.
1: This is where the famous story came of Wildcat escaping from the citadel by reducing his weight and going through a tiny opening.
0: This is the position the Seminole tribe takes. It's true Seminole did escape from the Castillo de San Marcos, but you don't believe they went through the bars.
1: Not only did Wildcat escape, but some very well-endowed Indian ladies escaped with him. And there is no way on this planet that they went through that little air vent. They walked out the front door.
0: How could they have done that?
1: Well, first of all, the army soldiers, the professional soldiers, many did not approve of the capture of Osceola. You've got to revert back to those times. When you did a parlay or a white flag meeting, you didn't grab off the people that you were meeting with. This simply wasn't done. The soldiers, really a good group, felt leave the Seminoles alone, let them go down to the swamps in the south, which will never be seen again. Why are we investing these lives of our professional soldiers in this at that time, seemingly endless war, where we're accomplishing absolutely nothing. So there were a lot of professional soldiers in the army that were
0: not wildly in favor. What was this Fort Payton that was in the vicinity of where Osceola was captured and the Seminole had their camp? Many, many forts
1: were built along the King's Road to protect the King's Road. That was one of many. And it's, of course, mentioned in historical documents and writings Sprague talks about it there are many other documents talking about that the fort there were many of these forts built in Georgia and Florida they were fire bases the indians simply ignored them in other words they went around them. they paid no attention the Seminoles were just they might attack them they might not but they certainly had little or no effect on the Seminole War. The stone at Fort Payton has a plaque on it, but the one that's identical
0: to Osceola, which is to the south, has no plaque. What would one find if one went out to this site today? Well, assuming you could pass by, but if you did, it wouldn't be there. Markers aside, can we say with confidence where that capture site actually is? Approximately two to 300 yards south on Old Kings Road, I have the map. It's on the cover of my book. Having the original, what were you able to determine from that map?
1: The county surveyor was a young sergeant with the Army when they captured Osceola. And he wrote on this map, it says Osceola capture site, approximately two to 300 yards south of this stone marker on a freshwater pond where the Osceola group was camped. The site was picked out by Wildcat and others, and they were there for quite some time prior to the capture. how do you
0: account for that seeming discrepancy?
1: i have puzzled that. I've talked to Mr. Held. We think that Osceola placed the white flag in a location where it could be viewed from Fort Payton which is to the north, we think he was sitting on a log or resting there within easy sight of this white flag, which was on a high post. So it might be where that stone marker is today.
0: Who is Stephen Held, and how does he come into the picture about this site?
1: Stephen Held was the son of a land developer who was very well known building communities in St. Augustine, and he built a community around Fort Payton. Unfortunately, he died not leaving the will and owing large amounts of money. Therefore, that site was being sold a large portion of land under unpaid taxes. Stephen Held was his youngest son, and Stephen is still alive, still lives in St. Augustine. He was a determined hunter, historian and naturalist, he was very much interested in preserving that Osceola capture site and keeping them from destroying it, the marker. We were frantic to get the Seminole tribe to purchase this land, and we tried everything. And some people got hold of it that threw houses in there. So there's houses in there forever. I don't think you can visit the site. And this is where Willie Johns comes in.
0: Oh, do tell.
1: This was the commemorative time of the founding of St. Augustine. They were expecting to get substantial money from the Seminole tribe for their anniversary. They had a whole series of programs. One of the programs involved the Seminole Indians, and they had some ladies there demonstrating Seminole dress. I know they expected to have one of the, I want to call it a woo-woo, you know, in other words, a traditional
0: history of the Seminoles, etc. Willie Johns approached it a little bit differently.
1: After he spent that day with us and we talked about what happened, Mr. Johns was very angry. He had this meeting at the college i called willie johns a seminole warrior and he's as close in this world as you would ever find to a real seminole warrior he not only was an accomplished historian story keeper and very important member of the seminole tribe he got up on that stage angry as hell and he walked back and forth his basic tenet was the terrible things they had done and he said Look, we want to take back St. Augustine. You know, if you tear down that citadel, then we'll consider giving you money. To my knowledge, they did not get it. In any event, you had a very angry Indian, and you had another young man who was with him that had memories of his ancestors being burned alive and being murdered by the white settlers he also got up and spoke. So it was a very angry moment. The crowd was just dead silent. No one said anything because they didn't get what they expected. This was reported in detail in the St. Augustine paper.
0: Bill, how is it that you came to drive Willie John's almost crazy? I've had so many
1: mysterious things happen. This drove uh, Willie John's nearly crazy. Uh, we were drinking beers in St. Augustine one day. I had sent my manuscript to Jim Billy, who was at that time the head of the Seminole tribe. My phone rang and Jim was going to fly down. He said, Bill, we don't know how you wrote this thing. He said, It's so accurate. And he said, You got the names right. Our names are phonetic and yet you got them right, the spelling. And he said, You know which way fish eaters. Creek ran, and he said, I fished there as a little boy. He said, No one knows that. And he said, It's, it's all in your book. So uh, Jim was going to fly down that day, but he never made it. But I did talk to him at length. Willie Johns and I were drinking beer, and Willie said, no, I don't want you to get too happy because you're a white man. And when the story of the Seminole tribe is written, it's going to be written by a Seminole, not by a white man. And I said, Well, I understand that. But I said, Nevertheless, What I wrote is accurate, and whether someone doesn't like it or some professor is writing a book in a college and is not happy about what I did, poo on him, I don't care.
0: Bill, you've talked about your connections with the Seminole tribe, Willie Johns, for instance. I understand you've also attracted some spirit animals, if I can use that term, during your writing sessions.
1: I would have animals show up. I would have a gray-eyed cat show up and look in my window while I was riding. I had this huge owl. Okay? I had these Osceola turkeys up here. And uh, these, these I photographed. i got pictures of them. But I had thing after thing after thing after thing after thing appear uh, to me. And they never appeared to Willie John. <laughs> he said, Hey, I'm, a, I'm an Indian, uh, but why are they showing up to you? Well, I don't know. I'm hinting at this in the technology change, but I have no idea why. I have had some very spooky things happen that are just beyond belief that are spooky. Well, I'll give you one. Uh, my closest friend, uh, his name was Dr. Gus Prince, and Gus Prince? Uh, he spent his life with Stanford Nuclear. He is probably one of the co-developers of the French atomic bomb because he he worked for the French Atomic Bomb Commission for some time. Uh, he was with Stanford University, quite a well known man. He was my buddy, and his hobby was redoing the Einstein theory of relativity, which he did. And I was kind of his gopher. He couldn't even copy paste. Come to my house, and I would be the transmitter of his papers, his communications with other physicists around the world. And he was working on a theory of alternate universes and uh things that are just beginning to be accepted today in physics. You tell you how spooky. He he fell, he died, and his funeral, Pat and I were getting in our car to go to the funeral, and this messenger pulls up with this big package from London. It's an eight-pound book, and it's Dr.
0: Prince's theory published and handed to me as I was leaving for his funeral. You don't think that's pretty weird? Bill? What occupied your time before you started researching?
1: I've been in the photographic industry for 60 years. And most of my experience was in Europe. And I, again, used to drink beer with German Wehrmacht officers and World War II people. And uh, I always loved the stories. And here I land in Palm Coast, (laughs) which is adrift in stories. Palm Coast is knee-deep in history that I just was drawn into it. I mean, it was fascinating.
0: And after settling in with the Palm Coast, you joined the Flagler County Historical Society. I worked in it, never ran it. It's had many
1: directors over the years. The main guy was dean, but there's been people going back, you know, 100 years there. They had the Flagler pioneers. Oh, There's been people there doing history for a long, long time. I was, at that time, very active in a new library. We built a new library and my wife was the head of the Friends of the Library. And I was conducting tours of Flagler County. I did that for 20 years. We had a tour bus. We would drive twice a month. We had an 18-person tour bus. I essentially got a ton of information from the local attorney, Al Hadid, who is a Amazing historian, and he had donated about four packing cases of documents to the library. So the library didn't know what to do with them, so they gave them to me. They ended up in my garage, and (laughs) I read them. And I said, "Oh my goodness, this is this is mind-bending." Because remember, Saint Augustine was an army camp, but south of Saint Augustine, hey, that's where the plantations were, and the stories are wow—they're they're just amazing. Share with us a few, Bill. The steamboats... Uh, that came after the war various battles conducted by Osceola which are detailed under Sprague and then you've got different army stories uh, you have a story of a Marine general attending the war College who wrote a paper that the Seminole War was identical with the Vietnam War and if uh, the soldiers had studied what went on on the Seminole War they wouldn't have made the mistakes they made in Vietnam because Vietnam and the Seminole
0: War were almost identical in how it was fought and how it was applied and what went on. You were also a sailor in your younger days. Stan, you didn't go to the same haunts as the other Swabies when you got Liberty. By some miracle, I'd spent four
1: years on a World War II destroyer, and I traveled around the world a lot. And I was not a professional sailor. I was a tourist. <laughs> and whenever I could, I would end up in a museum. When the other guys were at a bar drinking beer, I was headed for the Vatican Museum in Rome and stuff like that. So I was very interested in stories and history, even back then. And I, I ended up in the photo industry through some magic, being in charge of professional product publications and magazines at a company called Ansco, which was the first photographic company in America. It was much older than East Kodak. And Ansco had arrived at a collection of Matthew Brady plates, original plates, which they printed. And I had a role in the publishing of these plates, which were the first time people had ever seen them. I mean, uh, remember back then, the Civil War. You didn't have reenactors. <laughs> you didn't have all the stuff you have today of people dressing up in costumes and so forth. And those pictures came as a revelation to most people. So I had a ferocious interest in history, even going back to Matthew Brady and those plays.
0: With a half dozen books behind, Bill Ryan, what are you working on next? I've got
1: one that I'm writing right now, which is called the Technology Chasers, and it'll be about 500 pages. And it's going to be how technology changed our world and how it began. And it's going to take you right up through the Seminole War, because, of course, what came out of the Seminole War was young generals who were lieutenants. The landmine, wasn't that wonderful, was
0: invented and tested in Florida. Yes, indeed. Gabriel Raines and the landmine. Chris Kimball has podcasted with us about that. The type of warfare that was
1: conducted, the weapons that were used, the Seminoles had what amounted to a squirrel rifle, about 28 caliber, rifled, unbelievably accurate. The soldiers had what amounted to 1812 muskets, which threw this heavy lead ball of doubtful accuracy over 100 yards. So there was a lot of technology going on at this time. And keep in mind that after the Seminole War, we went off and invaded Mexico. So you had the Mexican War right after, and right after that, you're going to move into the Civil War. And some of these guys were young lieutenants. And officers during the Seminole War, and like one of the stories that I tell is how the Seminoles ended up in Mexico because they did, and they—that's uh, covered in gray eyes—and the Mexican Army readily accepted these trained warriors who had fought in Florida for years and now were defending the Mexican from the slave raiders crossing the Rio Grande River, and this they ended up in a place in Mexico. I try to entertain people. I Made up a book called Gray Eyes, and sometimes I move around in time, and I'll resurrect a long dead character and bring him back to life again. Well, the long term, when you're 90 years old, I'm one year off 90. There is no long term. <laughs> I have only a short term. I've tried to write this technology, which some people have read and have said it's pretty good. I've just invented the digital printer, which by the way, I did. The uh, digital color printer is something that I had a role in invented. I had a joint venture with a company called Honeywell, and they provided the engineer They had already invented one, which was used in World War II to make maps in airplane bombers. And we devised a way that you could expose color photo paper with their device. And we devised a way that you could process it and dry it.
0: Bill Ryan, inventor, novelist, Historian, researcher, surveyor, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars.
1: Well, you're welcome, sir.
0: If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs. Articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roast'em, provided by kind permission of Rudy Onman. Back bumper music, second seminal win by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman. Courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.